Welcome, everybody, to episode 33 of The Hopeful Majority. Today, our guest is going to be Dr. Peter Coleman, who's a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, and he studies toxic polarization and division and how we overcome some of these challenges. Sound familiar, right? And sounds like an important thing to have a conversation about, especially as we head into 2024. Remember, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. We have an interesting conversation with a guest. I give some of my thoughts usually before that conversation, and then we get into it. Remember, we're building this hopeful majority because we want to create spaces for open conversation, disagreement, constructive dialogue, especially in a year where we need that. So without further ado, let's get into the monologue, and then we'll hear Dr. Peter Coleman. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Coleman. He's actually written a book called The Way Out of Our Toxic Polarization. And beyond that, he also works with a really interesting organization called Starts With Us, which is focused on bridging political differences in the country. And not just political differences, but just helping people of very different backgrounds and opinions get together. I don't know. That sounds kind of relevant to what's going on in 2024. I also apologize for my voice last week. Uh, We also had this problem the week before. I don't know, man. Something's going on. Um, A little sick. Can't get over it. But just because I can't get over this this illness does not mean we can't figure out a way out of our polarization. That's what we talk about. Today, Dr. Coleman and I, uh, what's interesting in this conversation is we go over what conflict entrepreneurs are, what the outrage industrial complex is. Why is it that we live at this moment where We as individuals are actually relatively on the same page, and yet we have this political pundit class, and we have these elites, and we have our political leaders slicing and dividing the country. And what's fascinating about this conversation is that we touch a wide variety of things like President Trump, President Biden. We also talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict that's happening right now in the Middle East. We discuss, you know, the environment on Columbia's college campus because Dr. Coleman teaches there. And... Throughout the thread of this conversation, one thing I think becomes particularly apparent, it is that not only is this crisis solvable, but it's entirely within our own capacity. And in fact, if you look at the first episode of this year, episode 31, I go over five lessons that I learned from having really interesting conversations in 2023. And one of those lessons was that it is entirely within our capacity to shape and affect the behavior of our political leaders. If we, in the hopeful majority, demand that people online, that pundits online, um, have hot takes and conversations that are more oriented around good faith, if we demand an open-mindedness and curiosity that we don't see currently in the status quo, if we show that there's consequence for being an idiot in the way that we engage, then there's a lot that we can happen and and take place. And importantly, we can actually shape behavior. One of the things you see with Dr. Coleman is that he's an academic, and yet he breaks down these concepts in really productive and open ways. And we navigate the complexity of, of it all. One of the other interesting things that we actually touch on is whether or not war and conflict are actually solutions to our polarization. We discuss why something like COVID actually divided us further, even though the country would theoretically unite, I guess, behind a virus, which is a common enemy. Why did something like World War II lead to more unity and something like the Vietnam War did not? Why is it that the Afghanistan conflict has created more disunity within the country? And yet, you know, our fight with China seems to be something that is relatively bipartisan, the competition with China. 
we discuss all of that. And finally, one of the things that we end on is we can actually solve this damn thing because not only can we not solve this thing, that it is within our capacity to shape our individual behaviors. And that's the political detox challenge, which is fascinating to think about as we look to think about, well, man, this polarization thing is such a big problem. What can we do in our individual lives and capacity? So with that, I'm super excited to bring on Dr. Coleman to have a great conversation. Let's hear Dr. Coleman. I'm excited for you to hear that conversation. Dr. Coleman, welcome to the Hopeful Majority. Thank you for inviting me. And the last time we spoke was in September. And if you notice, I, I just accidentally called you Dr. Coleman again. And it just it just keeps slipping. It just keeps slipping. Because if you remember, we had this exact same conversation last time, which is, can I call you Dr. Coleman or should I call you Peter? What would you prefer? So yeah. to clarify for the audience of my own morality, uh, how, what would you like to be called? Peter sounds good to me. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, thank you again for coming on. So for Great. context, you're actually the second second conversation of the entire year. The first one was was we didn't actually do a podcast last week. We did a 20 minute sort of me reflecting on five different lessons I learned from the 30 conversations we had last year. Mm-hmm. And the, the number one lesson that I had learned, and I, I was so keen to share this with you, mm-hmm. is that um, from across my conversations with political candidates and presidential candidates, and then sort of political elites, if you so will, it seemed to me that politicians don't shape behavior as much as they follow behavior. Um, And what I mean by that is I was having a great conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy and in person, we talked for, you know, two and a half ish hours. And then on this podcast, we talked for 20, 25 minutes. I said, man, you're so different, you know, Uh, and I was thinking about this in my mind than you are on TV. It seems like the incentive structure shape behavior for politicians much differently. Could you, could you, illuminate this quandary for me a little bit of why there seems to be such difference in person as compared to the media and the news? Yeah, again, you know, like all relationships uh, in terms of cause and effect, it's definitely bi-directional. Politicians will normalize certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors. So Mm -hmm. when politicians are, are incentivized to attack, to vilify, to call out particular groups, even to start to insinuate that you know physical aggression is a good thing, a necessary thing, um, then they normalize that behavior, and then under those conditions, you start to see followers, particularly followers that are sort of more inclined to aggression and maybe more in, unstable or willing to just act out aggressively. Hmm. Uh, you see their actions start to become politicized and start to be tolerated or they see them as tolerated and therefore you see their actions as uh, as well i think it's you know again it's bi-directional the incentive structure certainly at certain points in the electoral process um, is such that these candidates have to stand out they have to you know they have to resonate with their base and so they say certain things that maybe aren't their whole truth or or aren't their personal preferences, but Mm. they know in order to even make the cut in a primary, they have to behave in a certain way. So it happens in both directions, but ultimately what our politicians do, particularly national politicians, but state and local as well, what they do, what they say, how they behave, uh, what they condone um, has a big cultural effect and, and changes the probabilities particularly around things like political violence. So what politicians condone, I'm curious, 
Is it so much that, and again, I know that you mentioned that this seems to be bi-directional, that uh, yeah. like most causal factors, there is a sense of bi-directionality to the relationship. But yeah. it seems to me that whenever I'm speaking to politicians, I'm speaking less to leaders and more to followers. And what I mean by that is it seems like many of the most effective politicians are not so much setting new trends, but instead identifying trends within the electorate and then tapping those trends and then yeah. almost shaping their candidacy and their uh, uh, their way of speaking and their method to accentuate that. Yeah. It, does that mean that then we, the people in the electorate, have a greater ability and capacity to shape their behavior in terms of what we demand? Or do you think that they're still pretty independently cordoned off? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's, it's hard to sort of respond to that in general. What I think yeah. of when you ask the question is, you know, over the past couple of years, there was this initiative in Congress called the, the, the Modernization, um, the Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress. And their task was to kind of try to depolarize Congress and make it more functional. And one of the things they looked at carefully was the fact they looked at the environment and the incentive structures and how Congress works. One of the things they, look, they realized is that there are cameras everywhere in Congress. So anytime you have a politician talking to somebody on the other side, it's on, it's recorded and they know that. So in that situation, like your, uh, your conversation um, with Rebecca, what is uh, personal, uh, it, it, sorry, is public, right? So they may have certain attitudes and preferences and values that they would express personally with people off camera that are fundamentally different from what they want their base to hear. And so one of the things that this select committee recommended is create some spaces where people can talk to each other as human beings and not as, you know, politicians hmm. um, where they can start to, you know, because they're, they're, they're both true. They are politicians and they're human beings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But what they're emphasizing depends on the context. And so when you have a place, you know, littered with cameras where everything you do is recorded, you're very cautious and careful about campaigning all the time. And that gets in the way of connecting as a human and with real problem solving and being creative and thinking out of the box. That's There's no space for that when you're trying to campaign all the time. Do you think that this problem was as egregious when there weren't a proliferation of technology and cameras throughout Congress and Capitol Hill? Was it a different version of the problem? Because I'm always very curious about the role that technology plays and whether or not what we're seeing today is a new thing or simply an accelerated version of something that was already happening. It's definitely, I think it, to some degree, it's a new thing. I do mm -hmm. think that the, the relationships in Congress, in D.C. in particular, but also at the state level, the relationships between members of different parties have changed profoundly since the early 1990s. There's a lot of structural reasons for that. Just the work week in Congress shifted from five days to three days, and people were encouraged not to move their families together so that the kids didn't grow up together, so that they didn't socialize and mm -hmm. have different kinds of relationship. It was a mentality of sort of politics as war uh, and mm. just not fraternizing with the enemy and you know putting them in, in a distance. So that change, which was a huge structural change that took place in the 90s under Gingrich, and then various technological changes like the role of social media, like the role of cameras and communications. All of these things have, have had significant shapes and maybe exacerbated some tendencies. But when you have a 24-hour news cycle, 
when you have need for information or at least a, a, a flow of information that's constant, and you have politicians now not just campaigning every four years or whatever, two years or four years, but every day. Yeah, you know, I was about to say. To raise money and survive, um, and they're being recorded, the game changes, right? And there isn't that space to be more honest and creative. They have to always be presenting their you know, positions as politicians. So you know how on social media you have these shorts and these clips and, and TikTok reels and... Uh, as I've been building this podcast, I can feel myself in moments saying, oh, if I ask this question this way and I get Peter to respond to it in just this manner, this yeah. 30 seconds could go viral. And yeah. and I, I can already see the incentive structures of how social media shapes our podcasting, shapes yeah. what we're doing to affect our actions and behaviors. And I can only imagine that if you're Matt Gates and you know that if you pull off what you did with the House of Representatives last year, yeah. it, it's going to drastically increase your following um and what's the not, way yeah it's not just social media it's also mainstream media right they uh -huh. know that these provocative encounters these moments that get attention this is an attention economy right yeah. where we're you know all competing in order to get more eyeballs on what we're saying and what we're doing um and and that is across the media landscape social media is definitely a component of that particularly these short clips but mainstream media, it follows that same thing, right? It really is the idea of, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You need to get more provocative news headlines and encounters that, you know, are more contentious and, you know, alarming because that gets attention. So if it bleeds, it leads. And yet it seems like today the incentive uh, is to only keep bleeding. Right. That that seems to be the consistent play throughout politics, um, regardless of what issues coming up. Yeah. Do you think that elected officials, when they're running for office and they're finally there, do you think that they know that this is what their intention is going to be? Or do they just show up and they realize that the incentive structures and what the one in which if I like, you know, I'm campaigning every day and I'm rewarded in this manner, this is the way in which I ought to act. How do you navigate that as a new elected official? Yeah, again, I think that it's a big question and it's hard to generalize because there are different kinds of politicians with have, have very different MOs. And there are some that are really in this to, you know, get as much attention and as much blood and to take down the system. And it's more about them and their brand and their name and recognition. Yeah. Um, and then there are others that are really sort of true servants of the, you know, the, the population. I have to say, I, I last summer went to uh, the bipartisan committee uh, working group uh, that was chaired by Kil uh, Derek, um, Derek Kilmer, and um, he's it, the congressman from Washington, right? From Washington, yep. yeah. And he had co-chaired the Select Committee of Modernization Congress. He was chairing this committee. It was it was Republicans and Democrats that I met with. Um, you know, there were Trump supporting Republicans and, and Democrats, but they, to a person, um, I, I was very impressed with them. And part of what I was impressed by, and again, this is a bipartisan committee, so it's a small group, although they, you know, were diverse in their ideologies. Um, but they, one of the things that came up in our conversation was, Derek, um, I, I said, do you feel a sense of dread towards the 2024 election cycle? I asked that question. Mm -hmm. And Derek said, well, let me ask it this way. He said, you know, um, how many uh, restraining orders do you have out against, um, against <laughs> people? He said, I have three. 
Um, and other people are like, oh yeah, I've got four, I've got several, I've been attacked. One man next to me said, well, I, I have, I don't have any restraining earners, but I hire a guy with a gun to, to travel with me. Sure. So, you know, they're living in a, in a different reality and they're not yeah. happy with it. They, they don't, you know, some of them said, look, you know, I would leave this job tomorrow if I felt like somebody decent and well-intentioned would step in, but I don't see that coming. So I got to stick through this. Mm. They're living under extremely difficult circumstances. We see the attacks on, you know, everybody from librarians to, you know, uh, city level civil servants um, increasing. And that's like, very acute uh, at the national level. So they're, as humans, many of them don't like the system. They don't like how mm. it's working and, and not working. But there are, you know, sort of con conflict entrepreneurs that see the benefits of their own careers to be as provocative and contentious as possible. And that's a different breed of politician that, you know, there's always been those characters in Washington and, you know, at state level capitals, um, but there are big cohorts of them, bigger cohorts of them now. Yeah, you know, what's what's unfortunate about, I mean, I can already think of 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 so much humor in this notion of a bunch of members of Congress and you sharing how many restraining orders you have. It's like a it's like an arms race to the bottom. And yet yeah. it's also it, it also sounds incredibly unfortunate. And and just yesterday night, in fact, I had a good friend of mine um, who was a couple of years older than me in college who became the youngest city council member of of Berkeley. And just and uh, four or five months ago, I think he had announced running for mayor and mm. just yesterday it came out in the news that he dropped out of both the mayor and ended his career is resigning from politics writ large wow. because yeah it's just insane he he everywhere he walks there's death threats and there's notes on doors and 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 part of me obviously is deeply empathetic to that and part of me is wondering well how much is it actually increased right now is the level of political uh, risk is the level of vitriol truly higher than it was, let's say, in the 60s, in the 50s, or pre-World War II during the Depression. What is your assessment of that? Is the situation that my friend experienced yesterday night something that is unique to this moment, and or is it just hyper-accelerated like other trends? I think it is unique to this moment. I do think that the, the longer-term trends, as you know, politically and both in, in politics and you know, state capitals and national cap, the, you know, the Congress um, and on Main Street uh, is, has been increasing since the 1970s. So we're much, much more polarized. And what we have seen really since 2016 is many more political threats against, you know, public citizens, but particularly civil servants uh, and politicians. And that is real and on the rise and very concerning at all levels, right? And again, mm. we've seen this with librarians who are singled out and attacked or threatened, right? Um, mm. So, uh, so it's, it is a real threat right now. Um, it's, there's always been vitriol, criticism, you know, challenges, you know, opinion pieces. Sure. That's very common. The, the sort of singling out of your family, you know, and I know where your children go to school, it's a, it's a game changer. You know, if you've ever had that kind of threat, it's so destabilizing. I and bet. So I understand your friends saying, I'm out. This is not what well, I Well, what do you think is, is, 
I mean, of course, there's so many multiple causes. There's a level of despair. There's animosity. I mean, you wrote a whole book on overcoming toxic polarization. There, there are so many causes to that. And yet, what do you think about makes this moment different than, let's say, the 60s? Because you identified this as a unique attribute. And yet, in the 60s, you had political terrorism and assassinations. What do you yeah. think is different? I do think that a critical component of today that is different. I mean, again, the, the, the way we communicate is different. The news coverage is different. The, there are new media bubbles. That's different. The algorithms of social media are different. Um, but I do think that when you have political violence and then you have, you know, national or, um, you know, significant politicians and leaders that, that um, really don't condone it really say this is wrong, we don't tolerate this, this is not American, whatever. Um, that is a different kind of ethos because then you don't, you feel like there may be consequences if you act out in that way, right? And that it's not part of the cultural norm. Today, it's either not mentioned or celebrated by our some of our political leaders. And that empowers groups to think, hey, we're gonna get away with this. We can do this. We have the, they'll have our back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so the consequences seem less, and it's become much more normalized. And that is a top-down phenomenon. Again, these actors, these conflict entrepreneurs, get into power because there is a base that supports them for various reasons. But ultimately, they are creating the conditions where you're going to see more of this kind of threat, threatening, acting out behavior by citizens because they feel like it's okay, they can get away with it. You just mentioned a term conflict entrepreneur and that's come up many times, um, especially in the context of of being incentivized to do something that causes you to drive more conflict. Could you just explain what a conflict entrepreneur is in the context of our politics? Yeah, I mean, again, we're all conflict entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> to some degree, you know, sometimes- Con Conflict is good. You know, It's a good story is, to tell. Yeah, I mean, my mentor, Mort Deutsch, was, you know, it was very important for him to say conflict is just part of our life. You know, yeah. we don't learn without it. We don't grow without it. Systems don't become more fair without it. You know, conflict is a is a necessary thing. He equated it to sex. It's fundamental mm. to life. It can go well. It can go terribly poorly. <laughs> Con conflict entrepreneurs, particularly in the political realm, are people who are intentionally being provocative, being contentious, maybe trying to take down the system or at least appear as if they can do that in order to get attention, uh, get more media coverage, get more power and help their careers. That's how I see it. It's to me, I guess the defining component of it in the political realm is, are they really trying to serve the greater good or are they trying to serve their own career? Hmm. That's a difference, I think. And of course, most of us and certainly most politicians are trying to do both. Hmm. Some people are really much more about them and their brand than they are about the greater good. This is going to sound like a really annoying question, but what do yeah. you define as the greater good? Well, something beyond you. You know, it is something you're right. And there, there definitely are, you know, kind of uh, different moral scopes for that. Right. So greater good can be just white guys like me. Hmm. You know, wealthy white guys. Yeah. Um, or it can extend to the, you know, the uh, um, more pluralist population that we have, the greater good for the most people, right? I think that's the kind of premise that our country was supposed to be based on, although, of course, there were limitations when we were founded in terms of who was considered as part of, you know, really in the game. 
But today, I think that there, there is a recognition around human rights that we all are deserving of fair treatment and equal attention and support and re access to resources. That's what I mean by the greater good. Does it serve our nation's experiment in trying to involve more people in real inclusive ways and to become a fairer society that still thrives and whatever. Um, that's my de definition of the greater good. Several politicians that I know and respect are really committed to that, even if it's consequential for them personally, but politics is a place that is short lived for them. I have to say, you know, one of the more pressing notes I got, um, last year was in the in, in the fall was from Derek Kilmer who's mm. resigning. He's not he's not going to continue in politics anymore. Um, and again, some of that's for personal reasons. He wants to be with his kids at a time in their life. And but you know, it's it, it it's not lost on me that you know he's been fighting. He's been tilting. Could you go into that a little bit of why he's why why he's resigning? Well, what he said to me. I had breakfast with him a, a month or two ago, and he said it's it, it specifically around his family. He said his mm -hmm. kids, when he was vote, running for office, he would always have them vote first, and they would always they were always in. And he said recently, they said, "Dad, I need you. I need you around. You're not mm -hmm. here. Uh, you know, I'm in a time in my life, in high school, or college, where there's a lot of challenges, and I need you." And he said, "I hear that loud and clear." And so I'm out and I'm going to spend more time with my family, which, again, is what most politicians said. In his case, I think that's a, a valid consideration. It's also probably true that he's been in this space and it's toxic and it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that exhaustion it makes politicians what a great job that we should all run for. Right. I mean, like I, one of the things that I'm nervous about is that the bench for future talent is limited because it just seems like a complete shit show out there. And uh, I just want to track back to this greater good question because it might seem like a tangent. And yet I think it actually links pretty good to this broader polarization conversation, which is that I hear the sentiment a lot that people will say, and especially everyday folks. And then when you actually talk to political leaders, almost no one will ever say I'm not working for the greater good. I mean, you could go to Matt Gates, you could go to AOC, you could go to, yeah. you know, uh, Ilhan Omar, you could go any, any pick your person that you find the most polarizing Congress. Nobody's yeah. going to say I'm not working for the greater good. And when you ask people, most of them will say, yeah, you know, politicians shouldn't be working for themselves. They should be working for the greater good. Yeah. And then, as you said, the greater good has a very subjective understanding to it. Yeah. And so to me, that almost feels like polarization is inevitable in society because we all have a different perception of what ought to be right and ought to be done. Yeah. So what is different about polarization as an inevitability of democracy, right, versus the polarization we see today? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So again, I'm very comfortable with the greater goods of AOC and Matt Gates to mm -hmm. some degree. I'm okay that people have very different values, value, value priorities, have different constituents that they're, you know, serving or at least, you know, appealing to. I think that's what we need in a two-party system. You need smart, passionate, true believers that challenge each other and ideally push each other forward towards greater solutions. But when it it's not really about that, that next step of I'm going to challenge you and you're going to challenge me and we're going to find a third way that we can both tolerate because it will serve the greater good. When it's more about, I'm not really interested in that step. Yeah. 
interested in just taking the system down because I'm it's going to get me attention and it's going to help my career. Mm-hmm. That's you know there is a basic di- uh, dilemma in psychology called the social dilemma, which is like how much is is this world about me and how much it is it about us, right? And for me, politicians by definition's job is to serve us, mm-hmm. to serve the us. And that us can be a, a smaller group, but if they really are trying to move us forward as a nation, as a state, then they're they're ultimately willing to push against the other side and to find a third way. Mm-hmm. When it stops at, no, I'm just here to push. I'm just here to push and break. That's serving me, not us. And that gets us nowhere, right? Mm. So I think that to me, that's, the kind of polarization that we're seeing right now, which again is toxic. So just to be clear, polarization in the US in the 1950s was insufficient. The Mm -hmm. parties had great overlap. People were like, what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats? You have the same platforms essentially, give give us some distance, right? Now we're in this place, places where there's not only distance, but there's such uh, disdain and contempt for the other side that you really believe they're out to mm-hmm. harm the country and we got to take them down and let's take down the whole system. Right. And yeah. let's take it all down while we're at it. But that that's interesting. You just said something fascinating, which is that in the fifties, the distance between the parties was, was minimal, that there wasn't uh, significant. Could you, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. That's what the population felt is that there was so much overlap on the platforms of the major parties that it was really hard to distinguish who I should vote for or support because they held, you know, common ground. Remember, this is coming out of the of World War II. It's mm-hmm. a country kind of coming back together and having been very unified against an enemy. And so we were in a different place. And there was a fair amount of consensus around public policy. Again, it wasn't all fair policy because mm-hmm. we're talking about the 1950s. But there was a lot of overlap. And, and, and partisans said... You know, there should be a more conservative and a more progressive wing. That's helpful to us to understand the choices. Mm-hmm. And so there was a call for more polarization, more distance. Yeah. And ultimately, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> they did a great job. Yeah. And again, there there is an optimal level here. There's yeah. too little and too much. And we are definitely at too much where now we have whole wings of political parties that are really about taking down the other side and maybe just taking down the system. That's so interesting that there was a time in which people said, you know what we need in the world? A little bit more polarization. You know, I can't imagine being born in the 50s and the nonprofit that is Bridge USA is focused on dividing a little bit more or or demonstrating difference. That's that's interesting. (laughs) That would be an interesting existence. So you mentioned war and conflict and the fact that we came out of World War II relatively unified. And I'll be honest, oftentimes when you know, my friends and I are like just sitting on the couch having a conversation about what would, you know, what would, you know, the the way out be, right, of, of yeah. our toxic polarization. Yeah. It inevitably comes down to, I think we just need another war. Yeah. What is your perspective on war and the role that that plays in unifying a society? Yeah. And how permanent do you think that that unity is versus superficial? Yeah. Well, again, the nature of war in World War One and World War Two, to some degree, served that purpose, at least in this country, in terms of un- un- uniting us as a people for a common cause against fascism. And you know, but think about how the nature of war has changed. 
So mm -hmm. Vietnam be, and, and, and beyond that, uh, war is not something that really involves my, us. You know, yeah. it's kids that get, you know, recruited or, you know, are indoctrinated into violence. And it's we, a very specific slice of our society as well. Very, it's usually poor, brown and black people, right? It's it's not the elite that, um, you know, I remember Charles Rangel trying to uh, re-up the idea of a draft and he and that just shut him down, you know? Yeah. It's like draft, are you kidding me? I don't want my kids to go to war. Yeah. So war is a different thing now. It's not something where we're all in, it's where a small population is in and we, you know, support the troops, but not really, you know, I'm yeah. not there. If we're all really there and we're all really in it, it's a very different kind of phenomenon. And then it can be very uniting. And so hmm. I think because the nature of war and how the U.S. takes on war and wars right now is so different and distant, right? Drones, we're in a, we're in a room in Kansas yeah. fighting a war, right? That all of that changes the psychology of what war does to us as a nation. Um, and so, yeah, if there was some huge threat, look, COVID was a war, right? Yeah. COVID was a biological threat that came at us. We didn't know what the hell it was. We kept making mistakes. You know, it could have united us as a people. It didn't because it was politically weaponized at the onset. Mm -hmm. And then it just became more fodder for division. You know, but this is, I think, the the difference in threats and the way that you're identifying it, which is the difference in total all-out war and selective war, or yeah. in the context of COVID, you know, it, it almost seems to me the reason why that did not serve as a unifying factor was because the same way that something like climate change might not serve as a unifying factor, which is that it's not an immediate in-your-face threat until it, it literally affects your family or yourself. It's yeah. still this thing that's out there, and yet war is different in that it feels like it's immediate upfront right there unless it's not total. Right. And, and, and it's a, it's a fascinating assessment on and look at how human nature is shaped by conflict and threats. Yeah. Do you think that I feel this way sometimes when it comes to our domestic polarization, that we're getting to a point where people are just so fundamentally exhausted that there might actually be hope in, in solving the problem. Like what I, what I'm hearing when I'm traveling or when I'm having these conversations on podcasts is people are just more and more of them are just throwing their hands up and saying enough is enough. We need to overcome this situation because otherwise the alternative is, is civil war. What is your assessment in terms of where people are with this? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I applaud the change from the exhausted majority to the hopeful majority. I think that's uh, should be emphasized because um, that is a possible pathway forward. Right. Uh, the, the challenge with the cause and effect of things like January 6th or this next year and what could happen politically, the spike in political violence, um, the challenge with the relationship between these cat catastrophes like COVID and ultimately what we do is that there's often a delayed effect. Hmm. So you don't see a, you know, Sometimes World War II, you see a catastrophe, Pearl Harbor happens, okay, we're in. It's good versus evil. Yeah, and then the world becomes sort of simple, right? And people more, you know, again, simpler, let's, let's put it that yeah. way. Um, but because of the complexity of our time, uh, um, these kinds of, so there's work by 
um, two, Paul Deal and Gary Getz, who are two political scientists, and they study a thing called the Correlates of War database. It's this 200-year-long database from 1816 on, which looks at how nations treat each other in terms of trade, in terms of war, in terms of citizens exchanges, everything we have. So all the data we have over 200-year period. One of the interesting things they found in looking at at the relationship between states over 200 years is that when you have long-term difficult conflicts between nations, 95% of them end within 10 years of some major political shock, some kind of instability, a coup attempt, the end of the Cold War, you know, something that really destabilizes the region or the international system. And then within 10 years, you see dramatic changes in the nature of these, you know, what were wars or contentious, what they call enduring rivalries, very destructive mm-hmm. relationships between nation states. I think that principle is generally true. When there are, you know, in our life, when there's a major health scare in your family, right? Suddenly your, your child is sick, your partner is sick, you know, seriously sick, and it, it changes your priorities. And you really start to say to yourself, wow, uh, life is not what I thought it was. And I really need to check my assumptions and spend the remaining time I have in ways that I value. That's a profound thing. It takes time, right? Mm-hmm. Then regroup and reorient and think about, well, what is a priority? To some degree, we saw this coming out of COVID with a great resignation. You know, Over 2021 and 2022, 100 million Americans voluntarily left their job the workforce of America is only 130 million people. A hmm. hundred of those 130 million voluntarily chose to leave their job now because they lost it or they were forced to. They said, I'm out. Yeah. Which is which is significant. Profound. And yeah. it, is a, it is a reckoning with like, okay, life is, you know, under COVID, life has changed dramatically. And do I want to go back to what was or do I really want to make a different choice? I do think that the political instability of our country, the decay of democracy, the the sense of threat and instability, what what Trump represents in terms of how an approach to the U.S. governing and to campaigning, I think these are major destabilizing forces, and it is forcing a lot of us to think about our basic assumptions. I mean, look, I spent two years writing this book and then trying to talk to the public about this for another year and a half because of the instability that I see. I wasn't, I didn't study political polarization before. Yeah. What, what did you study before this? Well, I'm a social psychologist yeah, sure. and I run a center in conflict resolution. And so I did study what we call intractable conflicts, yeah. long-term difficult conflicts that get stuck. Mm-hmm. That can happen in families. It can happen in nations. And it often happens in the international space. So I was mostly focused on that, but I wasn't really focused specifically in political polarization in the U.S. What about what about American polarization got you so interested to spend two years and actually write a book? It was a, it was a, a, a sense of an urgent crisis that the 2014-15 campaigns that took place, the 2016 election. Um, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movements, this combination of things that really felt like America, you know, and then ultimately the downgrading of American democracy by the, you know, economics intelligence units that said, you guys are flawed. You know? <laughs> You're sliding. 
So it, it was a real sense, a visceral sense that we are in a, a crisis place and that all hands on deck. We need to sort of think about and approach this problem with every model and tool we have. And so I, you know, sort of stopped. Look, I was running this thing called the Difficult Conversations Lab, where we brought people together who were opposed on a moral issue, looked, studied the conditions under which those conversations go well or go poorly. So as soon as Donald Trump was elected, I got a ton of calls from the media saying, how do we talk to each other about mm. this problem, right? Mm. So there was clearly resonance. You know, you were talking yeah. about political resonance. There was resonance around this problem. But I also just, in my own personal experience felt a, an urgency around this and thought mm -hmm. all right time to focus on this you know current state because we are on a bleak precipice and we have to do everything we can individually so we are we are in an urgent crisis and recognizing sort of the scale of the problem you're like i gotta jump in and then of course seeing the economic intelligence unit say the u.s is just now unintelligent it's not working out you're yeah. like i gotta i gotta get involved yeah now Here's my here's my curiosity about about the problem of polarization in general, which is I, I'm curious about sort of I have two hypotheses and I'm curious what you think. The first hypothesis that I think a lot of people posit about polarization is that the average person is relatively affectively polarized, that the average person is is highly divided and that there's no hope in the sense that you know, if you talk to somebody on the street, that they will be as divided as you, that polarization is that deep. And the second hypothesis, which I'm coming around to a little bit more, is not so much that the masses are polarized. It's that you have a vocal minority on the temperamental extremes that is dominating the conversation. Yeah. And then uh, an exhausted majority that is relatively silent and disengaged. Yeah. Which one of those hypotheses or assessments do you would you ascribe to, or do you have a separate sort of assessment of the problem? Well, I think, again, sorry to say this, but I think they're both true, right? Okay. Definitely in times like this, that the more extreme and engaged voices get attention, are you know are more active on social media and call to mainstream media. And so they dominate this, um, the, the discourse, and they shape our understanding of the other. Right. So if mm. all I hear is Sean Hannity screaming about critical race theory, I think that group is insane. Right. Yeah. That's just sort of where I go. And so the, those voices start to appear like, oh, they're all this way. That leads to our misperceptions. Right. And there is this misperception gap between how, you know, sort of how extreme the other side is on both sides and how extreme they are on their, mm. on their policy positions and our perception of them and our perceptions are off. And, and I even know this and I keep taking this misperception quiz and I'm always off. You know? Yeah, that, you know, we, that, we, that we overestimate how crazy the other side is. Yeah, how extreme yeah. they are in their attitudes and their actions. And therefore, we feel more motivated to react in a more extreme way ourselves. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle and it's a dynamic between us. Hmm. And so there, there is, you know, the misperception is fed by these extreme voices, but they, you know, sort of feed each other dynamically. So they're they're both true. I have to say, you know, I think one of the one of the things I want to point your readers to is one of the best summaries of the empirical research on polarization, what's driving it, what what helps to mitigate it. Um, I think is Rachel Kleinfeld's piece that she put out in September uh, through the Carnegie um, Foundation. 
um, and it really is a summary of this, the research, the state of the art of research. It's very thorough, it's very balanced, very nuanced, yeah. but it is sort of saying that these things happen simultaneously and they affect each other. And she's, what I appreciate about her analysis is that, you know, it's, it's, it's sound and accessible, but it's mm -hmm. not oversimplified. It's not like it's really this, right? It's like, yeah. oh, this thing feeds this thing and this thing feeds this thing. And they start to really make things hard to understand, right? Uh -huh. That's, I think, an important part of the story is that there's no one thing driving this. It's not just a Donald Trump phenomenon. This yep. has been happening since the 1970, late 1970s um, and continues and has been uh, sped up by the algorithms of the internet, by so the, the um, entertainmentization of news accounts and by conflict entrepreneurs like Donald Trump that you know are getting attention through being as provocative as possible. Hmm. So to anybody that's listening, Peter's made a dangerous assumption about you, which is that you're capable of reading academic research put out by the Carnegie Institute. And so this is this is a, the the vault has been thrown out. The challenge has been taken up. <laughs> Get out there and go read that paper. And actually, we'll link it. I know I know which one you're talking about um, because I am that nerd. And, and in <laughs> fact, in fact, I, I'm just thinking about like the one other person that has heard about the Correlates of War database and and is just <laughs> is just geeking out alongside you. I I have to ask you know the reason why we we called the show the hopeful majority is because I think that when we think about our division right now, it, it's, we oftentimes think about it on the left, right, right. That, you know, we're increasingly polarizing the X axis. And yet, you know, when I meet people, when we have an annual summit, when we engage, it seems like we have, we have a lot of ideological difference. You know, there's a lot of young people in our campuses and our colleges and high schools that have really strong beliefs. And yet they're united, not by what they think, but how they think a temperament, a mindset. And so that Y axis. And I think, Fundamentally, what our job is to do is is to figure out a way to activate that moderate temperament that yeah. isn't centrist. It's just yeah. thinking about being open-minded and curious. Absolutely. How much do you think that that assessment is accurate, sort of that XY axis and this breaking down of our division, not along necessarily ideological, but temperamental or yeah. behavioral lines? Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, as, as I have a new student, uh, Pedro Franco, who's from Brazil, Who's interested? He's studying for a PhD with me because of what's happening in Brazil, and oh, he, wow, he's from Brazil. Okay. He's from Brazil, and he yeah. always talks about. He's a he's a documentary filmmaker, but he's become very involved in political polarization, particularly on campuses in Brazil. And he does in, in his analysis, he he always has left right as a as one dimension, and then liberal and illiberal because you have right. intolerant camps both on the left and the right. That's a problem. And that's something that JFK yeah. said. He said, JFK said extremism isn't the problem. It's intolerance that's the problem. You mm -hmm. want to have powerful, passionate people, but if they're closed and intolerant and vilifying the other side, you're in trouble. Hmm. Hmm. Extremism is not the problem. Intolerance is. So yeah. let's, anybody that's watching this on YouTube can see that you're wearing a Columbia hoodie. And <laughs> I'm sure that they're dying to ask you, that if yeah. extremism is not the problem, intolerance is what's going on on a campus like Columbia today, especially given the tragedy of in Israel on 10-7 and the subsequent, you know, last couple of months, it's hard to have this conversation and not talk about the conflict unfolding in Israel and Palestine. So could you go a little bit into maybe, let, let's hold off on the conflict for a quick second, just what the environment yeah. is like on campus. 
Yeah. So, well, let me st uh, start by saying that. Um, so I wrote a piece, I wrote an opinion in the Columbia Spectator, our newspaper uh, in September before the October 7th incursion in, in Gaza and, or in Israel and then Gaza. Um, and um, it really was talking about the illiberalism of the culture of Colombia. And that was because the, the FIRE report, which is a free speech group that ranks uh, universities, yeah. had ranked Colombia as dead last in free speech out of 180 universities um, two years in a row. This year, we're a little better, but not enough. Well, you can't be good at everything. <laughs> but this is a big problem. To, if there is a sense that students have and faculty have that they can't say what their opinions about things, that they feel very constrained um, and afraid to, you know, express their their opinions if they differ from the, you know, the, the dominant opinions on campus. And that's been a big problem at Columbia. There's a long reason for that. I think some of it's cultural, some of it's the current generation, I think, and, and their understanding of certain political issues. But nevertheless, I, I wrote a piece and published it that sort of said, it was called Open Up Columbia. And it was like, pay attention to this. This is a problem. Here's some things that you can do to rectify it. Then a month later, October 7th happens. And immediately, Columbia was, became divided and weaponized. And those are two different things, right? Immediately, there were protests, um, you know, more pro-Israel, more pro-Palestinian protests. Um, but importantly, one of the reasons that Columbia and some of these other elite institutions are so much in the news um, and that these divisions aren't playing out on every campus, but are playing out in mm -hmm. some institutions, are because they're oftentimes targeted by outside agitators. So... Mm -hmm. um, Columbia is an Ivy League institution in New York City, big media environment um, in New York City that has also New York City has the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel. Right. So there are a lot of reasons why choosing Columbia University as a campus more than NYU right, mm -hmm. um, was is intentional. And I have to say what I immediately saw was not just student protests and letters from faculty and students, but outside actors parked outside with doxing trucks that were naming and shaming students or, you know, proselytizing from one perspective or the other. So there were immediately outside activists that descended on the campus that helped contribute to the divides around these issues. And Columbia has a history mm. being divided on a variety of issues, but um, but uh, Israel-Palestine is one. In 2000, I think it was 2000, well, at just, just, re just really quickly, Peter, I just want to quickly ask about one quick trend there, which yeah. is that you mentioned the role that outside agitators played. And yeah. and and what this strikes for me is that my entire story got started in, in 2017 when I was a freshman at Berkeley and yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos came to campus and it was mm -hmm. our second semester and it led to some of the most violent protests. And yet what was unique about that moment was it was actually entirely inspired by 150 agitators and my outside agitators and TIFA yeah. groups. And my entire hypothesis coming out of that conflict was not that the masses of students can't have these productive conversations or don't want to. Yeah. It's that there's a vocal minority and then there's the outside world that plays on that fire. Yeah. Do you think that that is, is more likely the case also at an institution like Columbia? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I, I agree with your analysis that 
these conversations are hard to have. And of course, yeah. our campus has students from Gaza. I have a student in my class, a Palestinian woman from in my one of my classes. We have Israeli students. They're, you know, they're throughout the campus. So it's not that this particular conflict isn't real and important and powerful of course, of course. to a lot of the students and faculty. Um, but it it doesn't explain immediately how divided we became that there were mm. An assault. There was, you know, a lot of vitriol. There are still are major attacks on the, uh, you know, on the other side that are happening in email everywhere. You know, th there's something about both the culture, but also the the fact that this is a place that becomes weponized, weaponizable. I mean, again, who did Elise Stefanik invite to Congress? The high-profile presidents, right? Yeah. So there's there's an intentionality to use these kinds of events to, for political gain for for other you know for various types of political gain and that's part of the equation. It doesn't explain everything. There is a cultural problem that Columbia has that they have to come to terms with. But it's also true that this becomes weaponized. So yeah. and and it's important that you started this actually conversation with outlining your piece in the Columbia Spectator, where you talked about that Columbia is actually dead last in free speech, that there is a cultural challenge. And yeah. yet the reason why I interrupt and like ask that question about agitators is because yeah. I think it is very crucial to diagnose the problem correctly, because yeah. if we as society think that everybody is crazy and can't have a conversation, yeah. then we're much less likely to be hopeful about the possibility to solve it. Yeah. And if the problem is that, yes, there are cultural challenges, but also it is not the case that the majority of students can't have a conversation. It's just that there's a vocal minority that's very intense, that, that is very intense on these issues. Yeah. Then suddenly we can get somewhere. Um, there's also, though, I think a generational and historical reality that's part of the context here. The yeah. New York Times did a recent poll looking at attitudes towards Israel and the Biden's and Biden's policy towards Israel across generations. And people yes. like over 65 who um, were either around during the Holocaust or know people that went through the Holocaust and have some sense of what that are, that is or was, um, uh, you know, again, generally support both Israel and Biden's positions. The younger you get, the the, the more that support collapses. And mm. Gen Z, I think, was in the low twenties in terms of their support for Israel, and their and their versus, I think, forty percent support for Palestine. And that is that when you're Gen Z, and I'm probably speaking to one. When you're Gen Z, you grew up with like the Netanyahu uh, administration in Israel and complete cynicism around a peace process and walls and ignoring of the dire conditions in Gaza, right? So you grew up with what looks clearly like an apartheid oppressive state in Israel, but without the context of, of you know, never again, of, yeah. of where Israel as a state came from. And so that matters. And so you have a student population, particularly the undergraduate student population at Columbia, who grew up with Israel looking like a bully and oppressor and saying, you know, this is unacceptable. Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that there is a trauma and a, and a history. There's a real historical context. There are layers of this that, are, that are, have, come, have accrued over time 
that certain generations are much less mindful of. And I think holding both of those is really critical. Yeah. You know, as a as an amateur uh, observer of, of our politics, one of the things that strikes me there is that your lived experience and your understanding of the world and when you're alive has such an impact on how you think about the world. Mm -hmm. And it almost makes me feel like history just happens in these cycles yeah. and that where, where, you know, you have a tragedy like the Holocaust, you have a generation right after that, that is hyper vigilant about what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, rightfully so obviously. And then as you progress and as the generations get farther and farther away from that tragedy, you get more removed from the causes and the immediate impact of that tragedy. Yeah. And it feels like we're on this constant loop. And this is not so much about polarization, but just the way that history moves. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's right. Do you think that as we look at this crisis and as what's happening in colleges and, and you're seeing there that there's an acceleration of a lack of speech and engagement that institutions like Columbia might be implementing better approaches? Do you think that there is... Uh, an urgency to resolve this cultural challenge, or do you think that people are just ignorant of the problem? Well, I do feel like there is currently is an urgency. I mean, uh, so our, our current president of Columbia, uh, Manu Shafiq, is um, just new to Columbia, just came in in July, is an Egyptian woman. And um, I think at this time, you know, was, and then this explosion happens on campus, right? And so I think, and she, by the way, was also asked to come to Congress to testify. Uh, they weren't subpoenaed. That's important. They, they were asked, invited, and some attended. She was supposed to go to COP and, you know, make some presentations, so didn't go, um, but has seen what's happened in Harvard and elsewhere. Yeah, she avoided right? a real bullet. She did. <laughs> <laughs> The stars aligned on that one. But nevertheless, there's been tons of pressure on her and these other sure. people, uh, on campus. So um, I do think that Columbia has uh, this, this problem, the cultural problem and the current divisions have the full attention of this administration at Columbia. And they've mobilized. She put out an announcement, I would say, a month ago called Values in Action, which is a series of initiatives that they're immediately uh, pro proposing task forces on anti-Semitism, on Islamophobia, on doxing, on, you know, and a variety of other initiatives that they're proposing. Because one of the things I, I think that made Columbia so vulnerable is, is because, you know, there is this population that is less tolerant around free speech and less tolerant, frankly, about conservative opinions or opinions that differ from their own. So a more illiberal culture um, but there's also an, uh, a missing component. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, free speech and of inclusion and diversity. I think they're, mm -hmm. they can work in complementary ways and powerful ways. And, and schools like the University of Chicago, I think, have sort of figured out that balance. But there's oftentimes a third thing that's needed. Mm -hmm. And that is when that tension between those two things blows up, two things blow up. Uh, you need to have some kind of mechanism for, for peace building and conflict resolution. You need to have ambassadors, trusted students, faculty, administrators that can kind of show up and broker those conversations. And we don't have that. We don't have that infrastructure. I immediately got called by Student Life when this blew up. 
they said, we want you to train the students. You know, we're going to announce this tomorrow, uh, having <laughs> conversations. And I said, bad idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> do not bring students together immediately for difficult conversations. You don't have an infrastructure to do that effectively or support that. You know, that's just, that's a fantasy, right? But I have to say, in contrast, in the uh, uh, 60 Minutes did a piece on this, Dartmouth. Yeah. Happened to have two professors, that Israeli-Palestinian scholars, who were friends, who co-taught together, and they immediately mobilized to have listening sessions together to, you know, bring down the temperature and to allow space for people to express their concerns. So they had some kind of infrastructure to manage that crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Columbia, unfortunately, is lacking that. We're really big on activism and, and social justice and reaction. We're not as big on, on, on peace or holding the peace during tense times. We have to get better at that. Holding the peace at tense times. And oftentimes, I think um, people assume, especially on, on the, on, in a very, you know, not left-leaning, but highly liberal environment like Colombia, that peace is actually in tension with activism. I think that oftentimes yeah. comes up. And in yeah. fact, this this King biography I've got here, this is the newest biography on Dr. King and MLK's um, days coming up on Monday. And I had the author on Jonathan Agin. We talked about the the fact that actually militancy and, and uh, action and peace and bridging are not actually mutually exclusive. In fact, they're two sides yeah. of the same coin. Yeah. And so that infrastructure is necessary. I'm also being cognizant of time because there's so, I, I also have a question about like how you think about balancing free speech and, and, and things like inclusion and diversity. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to hold off on it just because of time. I want to get this last thing in, which yeah. is that, and then if we've got a moment, I'll ask that question, which is that you've developed uh, a program that I found really interesting and useful to actually help us as people develop some sense of immunity and understanding on how we can actually be less susceptible to polarization and be armed with the capacity to be more nuanced. Yeah. What is that program? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. So, um, you know, we've been looking around at what's being done to yeah. mitigate polarization, and there's a lot of fantastic work being done by yourself on college campuses by Braver Angels and Listen First and these other organizations that are convening a lot of groups. Um, and, and oftentimes part of what they do is bring, you know, red and blue Americans together, people together across various differences and encourage them to get to know each other and have experiences and encounters with each other. All fantastic stuff. What I was looking at is the challenge of what I would say uh, is time. That one of the one of the ways that people across differences get along is when they live near each other and have lots of contact, right, over time. Um, and that's so you know there is this notion of contact theory of bringing people from different groups together and meeting each other, and that helps around some conflicts. It helps the best when they actually live together and go to the same diners and hang out mm -hmm. together and go to concerts and have some kind of common common connections. America has moved away from that. We have become more and more segregated, particularly across the red and blue divide. We're physically moving away from them and towards our own groups. Um, and that happened in Washington, D.C., and this happening across the country. That is something that's a huge structural challenge for those of us that are peace builders, because bringing people together to meet each other is a beginning. 
but it's only a beginning and it has to have some kind of continuous, um, you know, opportunity for people to connect. So we created this thing called a challenge, hmm. the initially four week thing. Um, and it takes five minutes a day. And it's we've we put it up on a website with Starts With Us, uh, which is a nonprofit that is trying to depolarize the country. And it really is um, something you can sign up for. And then you get a text uh, or email every day that says, OK, time to do this. Right. And then it sends you a couple of options to choose, one of which is takes as little as five minutes. And the idea is that you spend the first week doing small things that make you start to think about you your assumptions, your inclinations, your attitudes, you know, your misperception of the other side, the things that might be you, where you might be contributing to the problem in more ways than you understand. And so you spend the first week kind of on you. The second week, we ask you to start to get a little bit more honest with your in-group, your family and your friends who probably hold similar political values to you that maybe you're not very honest with anymore because we're, we all have ambivalence about the positions of Biden or positions of Trump or whatever. Mm. We have our ambivalences. We're much more comfortable talking about the problems with them, not with our own concerns about our own group. So the second week is about how do we start to do that? What are some small nudges and exercises you can do? The third week is about reaching out and <clears throat> engaging with organizations like yours <clears throat> where you can start to uh, reach out to people who are different from you and have those kinds of conversations. And what are some of the kind of preparatory things you may want to do in service of that? Mm. And then the fourth week encourages you to importantly find groups and organizations that are actually doing things together, that are bringing together red and blue Americans like Habitat for Humanity mm. to do stuff for their community that are just actually active things that you can do that, really have little to do with politics, but actually are bringing you together with people who differ from you to do things that matter to you. Critical mm -hmm. step. All four of those are important. And so what we try to do is just offer you ideas or experiences or exercises that can start to have you think about you and your own group and how to reach out to the other side and then what you guys can do together to sort of make a difference. So I encourage you to go with- um, you And know, where can they find this challenge? So it's called the Polarization Detox Challenge. Okay. And that starts with us. And we'll, we'll maybe put a link in the, sure. in the um, uh, chat or in the uh, description. Uh, on the description. Um, but if you go to Starts With Us, you'll see the Polarization Detox Challenge. Or if you just search Polarization Detox Challenge, it should come up. Um, and again, you just it asks you to sign up. And then every day you get these things. What we strongly encourage you to do is do it with somebody. Do it with a friend. Do it with someone who you used to be friends with, but aren't anymore. Do it with right. your brother, your partner, your you know, because it's helpful when you do this at the end of each week to kind of complain to somebody and say, hey, this, <laughs> Deep. Name, but this thing actually was Deep. pretty cool." It's there's like there's like political rehab. Detox with detox yourself, people, and do it with somebody that you would Deep. want to rant with. Detox with friends. Yeah, detox detox with friends and 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 go to political rehab man yes. where, where have we gotten uh, <laughs> so um the the last question i i always ask um peter of of every guest uh, regardless of who they are and where they come from is the question why what is what is your why and the reason for that question is because i think that a big part of 
building the hopeful majority is is helping people find purpose and helping people find a sense of direction. And for me personally, having a good answer to that question, why, is is super helpful. Um, so naturally, I would love to ask you, what is your why? Um, I, just for clarification, is my why, why do I do this work? It is why do you do this work, yeah. Why do you do the work that you so care about? Well, um, that's a great question. I have, I, I, you know, I, I would like to ruminate about it because I have several associations. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm not a religious person particularly, although yeah. I was born in a in a Irish Catholic family, and my brother was a seminarian, and so I grew up with a lot of Christ. Talk. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Uh, in 1959. And uh, my brother was 13 years older than me, a seminarian, a kind of idol as a kid. And, and again, he, he eventually actually left the church as well. But I remember the whole sort of Christ story as being very powerful and thinking, you know, he had got a lot of things right. Right. And part of what he was trying to do was he was the Prince of Peace. He was trying to build peace and relationships and whatever. And it, it's wrapped in all of this Christian dogma, which is I have a problem with. But what he represents and then what people like Mandela and Martin Luther King and Mary Parker Follett and Lama Bowie and others have done with their life is live that, right? Is live in a way where you're really about connecting to other human beings, being able to see the human beings that you're, you're you know, trying to work with and connect with. Um, and I think it's fundamental to the survival of our species and our planet. So that's my basic why. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for for sharing that. I I I find that oftentimes um, when we hear you know intellectuals, academics, leaders uh, like yourselves talking, we get to see the 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 very packaged, smart version of you. But mm-hmm, oftentimes, yeah. it's really helpful to hear the person behind the person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I think that 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 helps us break down some of the the differences, the stodginess. You know, when I had on um, <laughs> Andrew Yeg, we talked about milking cows in the Iowa State Fair and how that's a key component of running for president. And he said, man, I just hated that. Um, and and again, it's, it's you know, um, it's cool to hear about your background. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for being here. And for anybody that's curious, check out uh, Dr. Coleman's book, The Way Out, The Political Detox Challenge. Go to Political Rehab. Um, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much to Dr. Coleman for coming on The Hopeful Majority, for you to listen. That's the most important thing, because I'm sure you saw in that conversation that it takes all of us to come together to figure out how we resolve the problems of our day. And remember, we're not actually as susceptible to polarization as we think we are. In fact, those in power want us to believe that. And that is the goal of the show, is to bring on diverse perspectives to have those conversations. Every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, The Hopeful Majority drops. We need your support. Leave a like if you're on YouTube. Review it if you're on Spotify or Apple. One episode at a time, we're going to build this hopeful majority so that in 2024, 2025, and years beyond that, we, the people in the majority, are actually heard because it's time to change the way that our political conversations happen. So super grateful to have you on, and I'll see you next week.